That was it. Thank you, Grady. When Jacob was blessing his sons on his deathbed, he says to Simeon and Levi, who are brothers, your weapons of violence and your swords, may I never come into their counsel. May I not be joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and their whim they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Matthew, the author of the gospel just read from, was from the tribe of Levi. I think he had this streak in him. He lived in Galilee. All his life he was second class, never enough, and had a seated desire for power. He wanted it. If you were a Jewish man in the first century and you had a desire for power, you didn't have to look too long or too far too far for it. The power on the planet had occupied Judah oppressively now for 170 years. That little village on the banks of the Tiber, fueled by the ancient myth of Remus and Romulus, in just a few short years after the fall of Greece, they began to rule the world. They did it just as Daniel said they would, Legs of iron that would smash everything that came in contact with. Iron teeth that would devour anything and anyone in the way. They ruled for 200 years already and now for 600 more. They did it like no empire had done before or since. It was a smart, shrewd, ruthless system. They simply came in and made whatever was there, theirs. And as long as you didn't put up too much of a struggle, it would be done rather quietly. They made all Greek architecture theirs. They made all Greek forms of government theirs. They even took their mythology, their religion, and just changed all the names from Greek to Roman. Every now and then, though, they would make a statement. Like during the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD, when the Kidron Valley was filled with so many crucified Hebrews that you could not walk between them with your arms outstretched. They called it the peace of Rome. Sure, it was peaceful, because everybody was scared to death. They demanded only two things for not crushing you. That would be that you pay your taxes and you do not rebel against Caesar. Do that, and you pretty much could live as you always did. And it worked so well that within five years or 10, the Mediterranean was a Roman lake. I say it worked so well except for one place. This place that, the Phili- that they uh, um, derogatorily named after the Philistines, this place called Palestine. Israel, this constant thorn in the side of this empire. Countries 10 times the size of Israel could be controlled with one garrison city, one Roman fort. It took nine garrisons in nine different cities to keep the peace in this land, in the land of this stupid, stubborn, backwater people. They had only one God, one God. The Senate laughed at that when they were informed of this nation. And they even believed that this God has a particular interest in them. 
And Rome was warned, you're gonna have trouble getting tax money out of them because they believe that their money belongs to that God. And they recognized, as all do, that in a place like that, rebellion is just on the horizon every single day. So you had to decide, Israel, where do you want your citizenship to be? The real power of the world or this scrappy, tough rebels, uh, these scrappy, tough rebels who called themselves Abraham's kids, trying to be powerful under the world's rules. Matthew decided it would be Rome. Matthew Levi knows this power, and he sought to be on the inside. The tax collector were also called publicans. If you don't know, the the definition of a publican was they were public contractors, in which role they often supplied the Roman legions and military, managed the collection of port duties, oversaw public building projects. In addition, they served as tax collectors for the Republic and later the Roman Empire itself. Bidding on contracts from the Senate in Rome for the collection of various types of taxes. Importantly, this role as tax collector was not emphasized until late into the history of the Republic, first century BC. The publicans were usually a class of equites, second of the property classes just just below senatorial. There's a reason that when Matthew is born again, called by Jesus and born again, that his gospel has, uh, he's concerned mainly with his Jewish audience. He spent his adult life betraying those people as a Roman tax collector, as a publican. He would naturally want to reach them uh, with his being found by the Jewish Messiah. He wants to reach his Jewish people. Matthew's gospel relies on Israel's scriptures more than any other Christian text. Approximately 50 quotations and allusions to the Septuagint or the Greek translation of the Tanakh, the Old Testament. Unique to Matthew's gospel, the constant referring to heaven as the kingdom of heaven. It's only found in Matthew. It isn't found anywhere else. We looked at it 26 times, he refers to the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like. In history, the scribes, the priests, the religious leaders pour over the books of prophecies of Daniel and Ezekiel, hundreds of references to the coming Messiah. Captivity, occupation gives them an idea of what the Messiah would look like, of what they believed the kingdom of heaven would be. So when they hear these words come out of this rabbi's mouth, repent for the kingdom has come near, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Or, or later, Jesus begins to proclaim, repent for the king of, kingdom of heaven is here. As you go, he says, proclaim the good news, the kingdom of heaven is near. Those words, the kingdom of heaven is near, that would quicken the pulse for anybody waiting for David to be their military Messiah, to take care of this oppressive empire. They're ready for David. They're ready for Solomon. They're ready for Moses. Every time that the kingdom is spoke of, it stirs memories. Bright banners, glittering armies, the golden ivory of Solomon's day, the nation of Israel restored. 
And then when Jesus comes, he actually tells them, you ain't seen nothing yet. You haven't imagined anything yet. Truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Seven chapters later, he says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to listen to the wisdom of Solomon and see something greater than Solomon is here. Their hearts were pounding when they heard those words. Zealots stood at the edge of Jesus' audience with their, with their arms on their swords well-organized guerrilla bands spoiling for a fight against Rome. Finally, somebody is going to rally us so that we can do it. But to their disappointment, to their consternation, this rebellion never came. Jesus' behavior immediately begins to disappoint everyone looking for King David. He was attracted to the weak minority, not the powerful majority. He insulted the memory of Israel's glorious days, comparing King Solomon to a common day lily. One time there was a crowd who tried to make him king the way the world makes their kings, by force, and he mysteriously disappears and withdraws. When Peter finally did wield a sword on his behalf, Jesus heals the victim's wounds. To the crowd's dismay, it became clear that Jesus was talking about a different kind of kingdom, a strange kingdom to their ears. Israel wanted people who always wanted to be from a visible kingdom, a chicken in every pot, full employment, strong army to deter invaders, a healthy retirement plan. Jesus announced a kingdom that meant denying yourself taking up a cross, renouncing wealth, even loving your enemies. As he elaborated, the crowd's expectations crumbled. The crowds thinned and went away. And some of them even plotted to see what we could do to get rid of this wimpy so-called Messiah. Their expectations crumbled. Ever since you've met Jesus and he's called you to this table, has your expectations crumbled? Have ours crumbled? Jesus never offered a clear definition or description of the kingdom of heaven. He didn't give us one definition. Like I said, Matthew refers to it 26 times. And he says the kingdom of heaven is like, and he throws a whole bunch of parables and analogies and everything in there 26 times. It's not clear, really. But one thing I can tell you that is clear, in a typical rabbinic way of learning, sometimes when the rabbis were faced with something that was too magnificent or or wonderful to try to describe what it was, they would say it's much more pragmatic to tell you what it isn't. And instead of trying to come up with one clear definition of what the kingdom of heaven is or where the kingdom of heaven is, it's much more clear to tell you succinctly that it is not here. Just isn't here. To say the kingdom of heaven is opposite of the kingdom of this world is almost selling it short, definitely selling it short. 
The kingdom of heaven lives by words, but like Jesus says in Matthew 5, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? The son of man comes eating and drinking and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Which of the two did the will of his father after the parable of the two sons that were asked to go into the field? One didn't go at all. One, actually, one said he would go and never went, and one went, said he wouldn't go and then went later. Which one, he says, did the will of the father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes will get into the kingdom before you. What? the tax collector, the publican. Speaking of his predecessor, he says, John came to you in the way of righteousness and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. They began to disdain the Messiah when they saw who was following him. Then this verse from from Matthew 9 in the calling of, of Matthew himself. It happened as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners were coming to me. This immediately is after Jesus sees Matthew at his tax collector's booth and says, follow me. Matthew invites him to dinner with his fellow tax collectors and he's there reclining at the table in that household. And we believe it's Matthew's actual household. And they were dining with Jesus and his disciples and the Pharisees come and they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and and sinners? And we remember his answer, don't we? I came. Those who who aren't sick have no need of a physician. I came for them. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You lock people out of the kingdom of heaven. You don't even go in yourself but you try to lock others out who are wanting in. It isn't that they're good and evil people based on merit. Jesus points out that the problem is the professed church of the day didn't see themselves in the sinners that Jesus was eating with. Becoming more like Christ is viewed as meritorious. The church of the day thought that a religious life somehow merited the kingdom. And when people believe that, they will make the people that the kingdom was designed for stumble. The worst of sinners, a servant of the oppressors, the tax collector, sits alone at the top of the sinner's pyramid. I thank you, O Lord, I'm not like that tax collector over there. Matthew heard it his entire adult life. I thank you, O Lord, I'm not like Matthew, son of Alphaeus, who betrays his country and his father and God in his temple every single day. I thank you, O Lord, I'm not like him. It was this man that Jesus sees one day and walks by and says, you, tax collector, betrayer of his people, sinner at the top of the pyramid, no worse sinner than you, follow me. 
Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I've come to call the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners. Mercy, that word isn't even in the Roman lexicon. The first rabbi to ever look at Matthew and not say, I thank the Lord that he, didn't, that he made me not like you. The first rabbi ever to walk up to him and say, you know what, I'd like to have a meal with you. And not just a rabbi, but the Messiah. Has the former Levi, now Matthew, found his place at a table? Yes, he has. And it intrigues me that when Matthew describes himself, he lists the disciples twice in his gospel. And in Matthew 10, he tells you their names. And he says, these are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, known as Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Hmm. I go to the end of verse three. Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus. The reason that I go there, because when Mark describes the disciples in chapter two, when he describes the calling of Matthew in his chapter two, he says that he passed by, he sees Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. Hmm. Levi, the son of who? The son of Alphaeus. When Matthew lists himself among there, he lists his brother James as the son of Alphaeus, but he doesn't list himself as the son of Alphaeus. I wrote, I was written out of that family a long time ago. My connection to Levi is gone. That's why I changed my name. I betrayed my father, Alphaeus, my father, Levi, a long time ago. I never have been for years, Levi ben Alphaeus, Levi ben Yaakov, uh, Yaakov ben Isaac, Isaac ben Abraham. I'm no longer one of those children. Matthew didn't call himself a son of his father or brother of his brother. He didn't see himself as that. But Jesus comes puts him back at the table with his brother, puts him back at the table with his father. And Jesus says, you're my child. He didn't call himself the son of his father anymore. He didn't see himself as Levi anymore. He didn't see himself as part of the covenant that God made with those children of Abraham through his son, Yitzhak. See, but when Mark tells the story, he tells it through Jesus' eyes. When Mark tells the story, Mark says, this was Levi. This was son of Alphaeus. Matthew calls himself a betrayer, gives himself a new name, a new person, a betrayer, no longer part of the covenant. Jesus comes and says, no, your name is still Levi. You're still son of Alphaeus. You're still son of Abraham. You're still son of God.
because at the end of, of that narrative, he, say, he tells the disciples as he lists them, go proclaim the good news that the kingdom of heaven has come near. See, the kingdom of heaven has a whole new table set. It's set for the betrayers. It's set for the tax collectors, the prostitutes. It's set for the sinner who knows that they are sinners. We either can decide and know that we are sinners and take the invitation to the table today or we can stand off and say, that's not me. Levi would would have a place at the table, but not Matthew, this betrayer. Jesus says, go proclaim the good news. The kingdom of heaven is here. My table is here. It's set here amongst my enemies. So Matthew didn't see himself as a son of the father for a long, long time. But Mark saw the son of Alphaeus. And when he said, the kingdom of heaven has come near, Jesus says to him, the kingdom's come calling. You are who I say you are. You sit where I invite you. So here we are today. Betrayers, sinners, but the kingdom has come calling today. The kingdom has come calling.